0: Today we are here to tell Tom
1: Baltz and all the greedy slumlords that are taking public money to for their benefit. We are saying enough is enough.
0: It is time. It is time for the city of Los Angeles to take back this building using eminent domain.
1: scroll with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today, we're going to be talking about national housing policy, state housing policy, the LAPD, some super local housing policy news from my point of view, uh, the DA race, and then even more housing stuff, because it's a housing week here on the Ground Game <laughs> Knock Activism podcast. Uh, how's it going, Bushido? <laughs> it's always housing week. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's
0: always housing week. So uh, my heart was broken this week when John Delaney finally dropped oh, out. No. Um, not because like I wanted him to stay in the race, but now I can't yell drop out Delaney at all enough. of his tweets. Uh, so another one bites the dust. Swiftly replaced, however, by Michael Bloomberg getting on the debate stage by literally buying his way into
1: it. I was really loving Tom Perez, like trying to backpedal and be like, we're not going to change anything. If Bernie is ahead, we're not going to scrap the rules to make it so that Bernie can't be nominated. And then everyone's like, dude, you just like literally changed the rules last week so that Bloomberg could be on the damn stage. Yep. Like, there's the level of. Uh, trust that anyone should have in the DNC, like the national party leaders at this point, when it comes to the actual like party apparatus proper, uh, should be fucking none. I don't. <laughs>
0: I, I talked about this a while ago, but he came to a town hall here in Arizona about Medicare oh, yeah? for all, or rather healthcare in general. And the local like Medicare for all chapter uh, had organized a disruption, but they waited oh, till the end. Oh, yeah. And Perez, not being an idiot, left five minutes before the end <laughs> um, because if you're going to do a disruption, <laughs> do it in the middle or like when the person shows up so that they can't immediately do what BLM run away. Does. They know what Like they're doing. you can't wait. Exactly. Well, and also, like, waiting until the end of an event to disrupt it kind of, like, misses the point, but, you know, like, you learn these things as you go on. But I I have to say, like, Tom Perez there seemed pretty slimy and pretty ridiculous, and, uh, I don't really trust the guy, but then again, you know, it's the DNC. I don't think anyone who gets placed at the head of the DNC is going to be trustworthy just based on the nature of the institution. But, you know, that aside, um, I guess I'll just have to, you know, bite the bullet and, uh, Vote for Bernie in the uh, the coming uh, primary, which, by the way, mail-in ballots go out really soon. You can vote in person uh, starting February 22nd all the way up until March 3rd. So remember, March 3rd, last possible day you can vote, and you can register in person to vote. Make sure you get there. Make sure your vote gets counted. We got some really big elections yep. coming up. And there's going to be a uh, but big But now, after that pitch, which I'm going to be doing for... I was going to
1: say the big old voter guy.
0: Well, I'm going to be doing that pitch for, like, more yes. than a month. True. So, you know, just get used <laughs> to it. Um, but anyways, how's your week going, Chris? Like, you had some pretty big stuff going uh, yeah. on Yeah,
1: I mean, we're going to go into more details about that uh, when we get down to covering the actual uh, motion and everything else. But there was a press release, well, a press event, rather, uh, that was hosted at the Hillside Villa uh, Apartments over in Chinatown. And I got to uh, come on over. We, we Originally, I was going to speak for like a minute just saying, like you know, this is a big fight. We're here in solidarity. This is awesome. And keep up the good work, LATU and Hillside Villa Tennis Association, because they're awesome and doing amazing work. And CCED, of course. They are. Um, But it turns out that they had plenty of tenants uh, to come up and and, uh, rock the mic. So there really wasn't much of a need for me to hop in, which is cool. Um, But yeah, we'll we'll go into more detail about that particular event. I was really thrilled to be there and be a part of it. Um, Though I will say like getting home from there, I ran into some issues with the Metro bikes that were really annoying. Um, mainly that like, this is like absolutely like first world problems when it comes to Metro bikes, but the electric Metro bike that I went like walked extra blocks to go and pick up when I picked it up, it had no charge. So it immediately stopped being useful after like a half of a block and was then a more of a burden than a regular Metro bike, which was annoying. And then when I went and got a second Metro bike, everything was totally fine. I just had to, you know, get halfway home before I could get another one. And then, uh, but with you know with the annual pass, it makes it really easy to just like swap in and out, which is nice. But then, uh, when I got my second one,
0: I just call my annual pass my yeah. Well, fair enough.
1: I I didn't yeah details. Uh, But when I returned the second one Uh, because it's kind of nice to not have to worry about finding a place to lock them up and everything, because they've got these convenient little stands, uh, these little uh, bike share stations and whatnot. Um, I locked up my second one, and then like four hours after I had locked it up, I got a note, an email from like the L.A. County like Metro folks being like, well, we hope you're enjoying your ride, but uh, are you going to return that bike anytime soon? It was one of those moments of, oh, wait, what? So I actually went down and and, and uh, found that my the bike I had used was still there, uh, was still locked, and I took a picture of the bike showing the bike number, uh, the the like which dock number it was in and the name of the station all in there, and replied back being like, "Yo, I returned it three hours ago. Uh, don't charge me extra money for this that I'm not doing." It was fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh,
0: bike misadventures aside, I guess let's uh, move yeah, into absolutely. the actual news part of the news. Uh, so uh, back in D.C., there was a big announcement with uh, housing a- on a national level. Uh, a couple of ground game and power members were back there telling their stories, talking about the organizing that's been done around the Homes Guarantee. Uh, but let's let's go to the uh, the kind of line-by-line on this Yeah,
1: way. so some of our favorite congressional representatives, AOC, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and, you know, the squad – all came together last week, along with a bunch of other allies, to announce the introduction of a sweeping series of housing policy bills at the federal level level. So this is a huge step forward in the implementation of the People's Actions Homes Guarantee that we've loved to talk about over and over again and we will continue to talk about because it fucking rules. Uh, It was pretty awesome to see ground game organizer Ashley Bennett and power organizer Daisy Vega in a photo that was tweeted by Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib uh, as part of this announcement. In the tweet, Tlaib says uh, don't quote, don't you dare let them tell you that it's not possible to make housing a human right end quote. And uh, in addition to the rest of the squad, she specifically thanks uh, Representative uh, Jayapal out of Washington State, Illinois Representative Chuy Garcia, and Oregon Representative uh, Blumenauer. In addition to thanking the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, People's Action, and the Center for Popular Democracy. Quote, for your tireless efforts to make that a reality with the hashtag People's Housing Platform. Tara Ragavir, the housing campaign director for People's Action, told Curbed, uh, which by the way, Curbed did a really great right up on this whole process. Um, But she told them, quote, housing policy for the most part isn't discussed in the halls of Congress or among the general public. And what is discussed is pretty incrementalist or reformist in nature and not really systemic. We see the first order of business is showing that we can treat housing as a public good as opposed to a commodity. In order to do that effectively, we in the field, as well as our legislators, felt the need to de- to go deep on a set of distinct priorities instead of throwing them into one big, omnibus bill where pieces get lost." End quote.
0: And I think that's what's really important about the the Homes Guarantee overall is it wasn't written by policy people. Like, they were there. They were involved in helping craft it. But the demands that it's based on are coming from people who are living in uh, public housing, people who are unhoused, people who are severely rent burdened. Like, the people who are being hit the most acutely by the housing crisis are the ones who got to say these should be the fixes. And that's revolutionary that it's picking up this much steam this quickly. Like, it's kind of crazy. You know, even compared to something like the Green New Deal, where, like, the Green New Deal is sort of based in, like, science and kind of principles and ideas that have already been sort of field-tested and have been, like, in the national discourse for decades— Whereas, like, housing policy in the last two years, this has become the major driver of political change in this country. And it was not on anybody's radar before 2016. It's kind yeah. of crazy. And I think Prop 10 didn't just, I don't think Prop 10 caused that. I think Prop 10 was the bleeding edge of this trend. And, like, we have a lot to look back. Um, on like the Prop 10 fight here in California as far, as far as like what works and what doesn't as we enter into this like bigger, broader national fight. But I'm really excited to see this plan getting so much congressional representation um, and being pulled together so quickly. And it's got some really important stuff going on it. So let's like go down and dig into For some sure. of the For sure. So Patrick here.
1: Sisson over at CURB uh, he, he put to, he pulled together this article and he lists the seven planks from the platform, uh, really quite succinctly. So we're just going to pretty much paraphrase and or quote from him here. Uh, the first of these planks is AOC's Quote a Place to Prosper Act, um, which was introduced last fall as part of her Green New Deal for Public Housing plan, uh, alongside Bernie Sanders. If you remember us reporting on that, so this bill uh, it aims to expand renter assistance programs, strengthen tenant rights, invest some ten billion dollars in lead abatement, which is a huge. Huge issue around the country, specifically over on the East Coast uh, in all of the inner cities there. And it would also tie highway funding to equitable development practices. So that's an awesome awesome piece of legislation. Um, The second plank is Ayanna Presley's plan to revitalize the Housing Trust Fund, uh, which would also increase tenant input into the process through strengthened resident councils and link transit and infrastructure spending to a reform of exclusionary zoning policies, uh, like things saying that municipalities would have to get rid of their height restrictions, for instance, to qualify for that funding. Uh, The third plank is Ilhan Omar's previously introduced Homes for All Act, which would allocate new fund for the construction of 10 million new public housing units and create a $200 billion community control and anti-displacement fund to fight gentrification. Uh, this is estimated as having a $1 trillion price tag, but that is, you know, small change compared to what the impact would be. Uh, the fourth plank is Rashida Tlaib's proposal to replace the Opportunity Zone program. With a community benefits fund that would provide grants for community land trusts, land banks, and nonprofits working in underinvested communities, all funded by the repeal of Opportunity Zones. Uh, so, in other words, arguing that the tax revenue that was expected to be lost from that program could actually just be redirected to other spending. Um, the fifth plank. Mm-hmm is uh, Representative Pramila Jay- Jayapal's proposal to combat homelessness, and it's called the Housing is a Human Right Act. Uh, this act would work by increasing funding for a range of support services, including medical and mental health treatment, and aims to ensure homelessness services are available to everyone who needs them. The sixth plank is Oregon Representative Earl Blumenhall's Blumenauer's uh, proposal to offer a refundable monthly tax credit for renters and tax credits to help potential first-time homebuyers, uh, which is pretty cool. But that one, honestly, doesn't seem nearly as big as the others, but yeah, whatever.
0: A, a little market yeah. for my taste, but I'll take it.
1: <laughs> but he's not part of the squad. Uh, and seventh, last but not least, Illinois representative Chuy Garcia is finalizing a bill to fight real estate speculation. The details are going to be released later this year. So that one actually, to me, seems like a very... Potentially very cool, very interesting piece of legislation, but I'm really wondering what the details are going to be on that because uh, re- ending speculation really is like at the root of how the this country is going to need to tackle the decommodification like, de- of housing because – That it has become the single biggest speculative asset that like almost anybody owns.
0: I think if if done correctly, uh, combined with uh, the the kind of land trust idea from Iona Presley, the housing trust fund, what you can do is like if you lock the speculators out by either making it very tax disadvantageous to operate in certain neighborhoods, or um, you know just outright like outlaw that type of, like, flipping, Um, though I don't know exactly how you would do that. It would probably be easier to just, like, kind of go the tax route. But by using that to disincentivize the speculators, you create a glut of housing that can be bought up by the housing trust fund, you know, rehabilitated and then turned into permanently affordable housing. And that's how we start decommodifying the housing market and doing it in neighborhoods that are economically depressed is the best way to start rebuilding that economic base there and also buying that community some time to, like, get on their feet because, Otherwise, you face this rapid rise Mm -hmm. in gentrification where prices and everything skyrocket so much that the neighborhood gets gutted. People, you know, either leave when they can afford to or stay there because they can't afford to leave and then eventually get forced out.
1: Yeah. So this is like all of these things are all like each of these planks relates to the other planks and they all will work together. Uh, pretty, like, in a, in, a, in an epic kind of way, to my mind, um, to really fundamentally change how housing works in this country. And I'm really excited to see how this moves forward. I mean, it's extremely unlikely that this would ever get it, you know, if, if it gets to the Senate, it certainly isn't going to get through the Senate because, oh boy, uh, we've seen how incredibly... Uh, <laughs> I mean, not, <laughs> no. this, not this Senate, obviously. <laughs> yeah, this name. Senate sucks.
0: Not the Senate that just voted to tell the Democrats to stop punching themselves
1: <laughs> in the face. Um, Yeah, but yeah. Hey, not, so this we, we'll, we'll go on a little bit. Uh, the 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 value in introducing this kind of legislation at this point, even though you know that it's not going to get through the Senate in its current form, uh, is very important. It, it like the well, let me just say, Diane Enriquez, who's the co-director of the Community Dignity Community Dignity campaigns for the Center for Popular Democracy, told Curb that quote. The reality is this is also a way for us to demonstrate that there are leaders and champions within Congress ready to take action now. And it's a call to action now to the rest of our legislators to stand up and be brave and put the needs of their constituents above corporations. These are key progressive lawmakers taking a stand. If these laws don't pass soon, that doesn't mean we won't be building political power on on a state and local level to eventually pass these laws, end quote. That is what this is about. This is putting a line in the sand and saying, hey... This is what we need to do, get with us, get with this program, or we will replace you. This is what we are building power around. This is how you engage the millions of disaffected, apathetic voters who rightfully and understandably believe that the political system in this country has for generations not given a shit about what they're doing and about their struggles and has been giving them no reason to vote, or be engaged, or be politically active in any real way. This legislation, these proposals, is how you change that. And I am super excited about it.
0: Well, and it also, it represents a really big change from, A, not just, like, the not talking about what's been going on in housing that we've had, you know, as part of the national conversation for too long, but directly relating to uh, something that's been going on here in California and
1: just
0: finally... Finally, dying. Uh, you know, SB dying. fifty is is finally dead. We don't ever have to talk about it again. Uh, oh. But we'll always be talking about it forever because it will never die. Uh, after being defeated eighteen to fifteen in the Senate Ooh. on Wednesday, uh, and five senators—no, I'm sorry, six senators—declined uh, to vote. Um, but one of them was out of town. Uh, so, But those five votes could have swayed it, but I guess they just didn't care about the most controversial bill to hit housing Twitter in, in ages. <laughs> uh, so you would think, like, all said and done, like, we can move on to, like, other stuff. Like, we don't need to incentivize more market rate building. We could, you know, start building public housing. We could start expanding land trusts. We could get to work on repealing Article 34. Uh, we could... Start taxing the hell out of Amazon and like using that to build the like 3,500 units of affordable housing that are authorized in every single council district in the city of LA and aren't being built. Uh, Just to throw in that aside. Uh, But no, Scott Wiener has released two placeholder bills uh, that I don't have the details on at the moment, but basically two sort of halves of SB 50, I guess. Yeah, so uh, sp 50 is dead until it gets resurrected. <laughs> uh, until, well, it, and here's the thing. If you would like to stop this Nightmare of necromancy in the legislature. You can get Jackie Fielder elected because she was running against hey. Mister Weiner uh, up in San Francisco. She is a fantastic uh candidate who is running on a very like progressive platform. Housing is a human right. Medicare for all. All of the stuff that like Mister Weiner does not support, and she takes no money from developers. Wow, so contrast. Jackie Fielder, if you're up in San Francisco, yeah. Give her your vote. If you can't vote for her, give her some yep. of your money. Uh, Scott Wiener, like we reported in NOC, has taken more money from developers than any other politician in the state of California. Oh, yeah. Like, he needs to be defeated for us to move the housing debate forward. He literally sucks all the air out of the room with his bills and his attempts to, like, fix this crisis through market-based neoliberal solutions that will only make the pain worse. Like, nothing that Wiener is doing is going to stop us from, like just hemorrhaging working-class families out of the state because they can't afford to stay here. Like, the fixes to this need to be systemic, not these little sort of like middling policies where Scott wants to just sort of slightly reform the housing market, like we actually have to attack this corruption of speculation and private ownership at the roots or we're never getting past this. Uh, So SB50 is dead. To keep it dead, vote for Jackie Field. And
1: uh, Uh, long live the home's guarantee because that's how you actually solve this shit, people. The stuff that SB 50 proposed wasn't going to solve a damn thing. It was only going to make things worse. Anyone who says otherwise is just listening to what the Yimby assholes up in San Francisco say and not listening to the people who are on the front lines of this issue, which are the tenant organizers who signed on to that letter that we quoted so extensively a couple of weeks ago. Like, there's a reason why none of these organizing folks, none of these organizations of folks who are like actual frontline communities were down with Wiener's bullshit. So, yeah. Yeah, so let's move on to everyone's favorite segment.
0: So, we have more details on the killing of Victor Valencia, who is the unhoused man who was killed by LAPD out in the sort of Culver City Palms border area. Uh so let's talk about that. Uh and this includes also the full video of the incident mm-hmm. was released. Um it's kind of weird we'll talk about when when we get to it but we'll definitely have the link to the video if you want to watch it um we'll just sort of describe the contents here it's not entirely graphic but it's also you know very hard yeah to watch. so
1: the last time that LAPD mentioned anything about Victor Valencia on their social media channels was back on January 11th when they very briefly reported uh in a very dry way saying there was a police there was an officer involved shooting this is where it happened Uh, And then warning commuters about snarled traffic and also claiming that they didn't know the condition of their victim who was lying dead on the street at that point. Uh, Very late on Tuesday night this past week. The LAPD YouTube channel released their critical incident community briefing video relating to this shooting. And our friend and White People for Black Lives organizer Adam Smith was paying very close attention because this is what he does. Quoting from his Twitter thread Tonight in the middle of the night, they posted their critical incident video. And while they, of course, attempt to criminalize Victor Valencia, and even though they magically don't show the shooting, it's obvious they shot an unarmed person in the back. End quote. So later on in the thread, He goes on about how the LAPD released a 40-minute video on their YouTube that shows LAPD Sergeant Colin Langsdale recently demoted from detective murdered Victor Valencia. The pieces of 911 calls they released shows that even the callers weren't positive Victor Valencia had a gun. I, I don't know, parenthetical, he didn't. Uh, but the dispatchers decided he did. What they didn't include was the earlier dispatch call when they told LAPD that they were responding to a person that may or may not have been armed, but a black man with a gun. Or, sorry, when they told. What they didn't include was their earlier dispatch call when they told LAPD they were responding to not a person that may or may not have been armed, but rather a black man with a gun. Here's what the dispatcher said on the audio that day
0: significant 14-year-old with a grand vitensis pomolata vitensis pomolata suspect is a male Hispanic male black blue long sleeve button up shirt black pants 6 foot, waving a black handgun in the air he left the pomolata on the sidewalk across from the
1: junior code resident 2089 rd 14
0: it's weird listening to the dispatch call and wondering you know what changed there amongst these quote highly trained professionals that we're paying a billion dollars a year for where they you know, murdered someone who didn't have a gun. But the the other thing that was interesting to me when you're watching the critical incident video is they have, I believe she's a sergeant, comes on and explains how the buffering system works and how it catches, like, two minutes of video um, without sound after before you hit the, the button to, like, tell it to record. Um, but that only works if the camera is turned on or is powered on and this particular officer did not have his body cam powered on. So by the time the body camera comes on, you have two minutes of video that has no audio to it that happens after the shooting. So you don't actually see the incident occur, but you can see how far away the officer is from Victor Valencia. Then they go through this whole, like, rigmarole of getting, like, a half dozen cops to surround this guy with guns pointed at him, um, all to determine that, like, he doesn't have a gun. And you can see there's a part where they're like, where's the gun, where's the gun, where's the gun? And they don't know where the gun is, and they don't see the gun, and they get really upset about that. But it looks like the bike part is lying on the ground. So it looks like the cops walked up, saw the bike part on the ground, were like, well, that's not the gun. He must have a gun.
1: Yeah. it's The, uh. the whole situation is just incredibly fucked up. And... It's i I don't honestly, I don't know what else to say. Like the fact that it got the communication lines broke down so badly, like people who were calling this in weren't sure if he had a gun. The dispatcher decided to say that he does have a gun. And then when the cops get there and they see this bike part that you know Michael Moore and everybody else was talking about as being this threatening looking piece of a bike, you know <laughs> that was being brandished or something, like none of that comes together. like this all. Their whole story here falls apart and it's really just a tragedy that this, the the simple act of miscommunicating between a dispatcher, you know, whoever took the 911 call and then whoever passed it on with the, through the dispatch or whatever, like that line of communication is critical. And it resulted in a man being shot in the back and dying. Like it's 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 truly a tragedy. And and we need to see real change in how the LAPD handles these kinds of situations. And I mean, when we talk about like disarming the cops, this is the reason why, like clearly these officers who got to this scene and were responding to this incident were not the people who should have had guns. They lack the critical decision-making faculties on that kind of a situation in a high pressure situation to make the determination of whether or not a guy who doesn't have anything in his hands is armed. That is unacceptable. Well,
0: and it's also a a thing where it points to kind of the underlying assumption that we have in at least government and policy where a police officer's life is worth more than a civilian's life. And, like, you can kind of understand that from, like, a status perspective. Like, the government spent money training this officer. They're invested in their survival. They're invested in having agents of the state that are, like, able to effectively carry out and enforce policy. But it also raises the question of, like, can you really have a force that feels that way about themselves, as though, like, each LAPD officer is more important than any civilian on the street and can effectively protect and serve a community? Um, Because it seems like when you encounter LAPD officers versus, like, other nations' cops who aren't armed, there's a very tangible difference here, even to the point where, like, innocent people get blown away by LAPD and that doesn't cause a change in tactics. You know, someone who is like beyond reproach, like someone who is working their job as a manager at Trader Joe's on a Sunday and then gets shot by a cop firing into a a full grocery store. And these things are very, very linked, part and parcel. And I don't, you know... I know these incidents aren't going to go down because the police are just getting more violent against the unhoused. And to an extent as things are getting more desperate in the discourse, I feel like things are also getting more desperate on the street and in city hall where they want a solution. And the only solution they've got is this like big stick policy. Uh, And the only way that big stick policy works is by continuing to like beat people to death. So I know we're going to be talking about this a lot more. Let's, uh, Let's move on to something before we get too <laughs> I mean, bogged down in the cops because I'm, we could just I'm, go I'm on just for hours. I'm my, just feeling
1: my mood just uh, dropping we'll be, as we're discussing this and, and beginning to feel yeah, that, that sense no, of overwhelming, like we're staring into the void. Like, oh, God damn it.
0: It's just so fucking depressing. You know, three a day in L.A., Um, And we'll kind of put a pin in that because we'll definitely be talking about it again. So yeah, let's move on from uh, LAPD being terrible and killing people to uh, something a little bit better. So this was a big win out in uh, Chinatown at the Hillside Villa Apartments, which are Affordable apartments, insofar as they're under a covenant, the landlord was getting ready to to basically flip over the building and to, to, you know, not renew the affordable housing covenant. Uh, This caused a wave of community protests. It also caused the involvement of, like, L.A. Tenants Union and a bunch of big tenant orgs. Uh, They fought for the last year to get the city of L.A. to buy the building and just make it city-owned public housing, essentially. And it looks like we might be getting that. So uh, let's talk about this big win.
1: Yeah, so this is the latest step in an escalating conflict between the tenants who live in this affordable housing complex. It's I think it's 124 units um, on Hill Place in Chinatown. Uh, and their landlord is Tom Botts. Uh, so if you... Uh Want to get some lovely light background reading on this? Uh, Jacob Wucher has a couple of pieces that have gone up, I believe, and there's there's one of them in particular that was published in Knock last year in May, um, where he quoted a letter from this tenants' association, or I, I actually I think this was before they had strictly speaking, formed mm-hmm. a tenant's association. It's while they were in the process of, I believe. Uh, and they had written a letter to Gil Cedillo making their demands clear and or explicitly stating why they were organizing, say, so quote, We do not want to have to worry about rents being raised to market rate in five to 10 years. We do not want to, we do not think a heartless and unaccountable landlord like Thomas Botts should be profiting off of subsidized housing. And we strongly believe that working class tenants of color like us deserve to stay in Chinatown permanently. Our main demand is more lasting and what we want from you is relatively straightforward. Help us keep the Hillside Villa apartments permanently affordable. We believe the city of Los Angeles can and should use eminent domain to purchase the building and ensure it remains affordable in perpetuity. Alternatively, the city could help arrange a funding for a nonprofit to purchase the building. Uh, So for a little bit of context on this, what ended up happening with the initial exchange between the Tenants Association and Tom Botts was that uh, they ended up having Gil Cedillo get involved, and he did not go so far as to uh, used the process of eminent domain to, to, to line up purchasing this building from Tom Botts. What ended up happening was that they brokered a bit of a deal. It was a, a deal that was done in good faith. Um, I believe it was you know settled with a handshake and whatnot uh, to do some, some kind of like a, a loan forgiveness or refinancing mm-hmm. um, that was on the order of like $12 million in terms of the, the, the monetary gain that was going toward Tom Botts. Uh, and that discussion happened, I believe it was about six or so months ago. I mean, it was at the end of the summer, beginning of the fall, when we last discussed what was going on there. And at that point, they had made the uh, agreement. And uh, the, actually, the, it was the first time that Tom Bott started to look like he was going to renege on that agreement. Uh, yes. He has, at this point, completely reneged on that, which has then earned him the ire of Gil Cedillo. Uh, so on Friday, uh, this is the event that I had, you know, had my fun little adventure with the Metro bikes getting home from. Uh, those tenants and their allies uh, from, you know, CCED, which is the Chinatown Community for Equitable Development, uh, to the Los Angeles Tenants Unit, and a bunch of other orgs from around the city, including the Crenshaw Co- uh, Crenshaw Subway Coalition, um, they, they got their wish. So Gil Cedillo proposed a motion, which you can find on Council, f- uh, council File 20-0148. Uh, that concludes with the following two paragraphs. Charter Section 581E authorizes the Board of Public Works to, quote... Exercise the power of eminent domain subject to council authorization. As such, the Bureau of Engineering, with the assistance of the Housing and Community Investment Department and in consultation with the city attorney, need to report in 30 days with recommendations for the acquisition of private property located at 636 North Hill Place, Los Angeles, California 90012, and other similarly situated housing developments whose affordable housing covenants are now reaching an expiration date. Emphasis mine, because that's the part that I really like. Yes. The final paragraph is, I therefore move that the Bureau of Engineering with the assistance of the Housing and Community Investment Department and in consultation with the city attorney because you got to get all the formal language in, be directed to report in 30 days with recommendations for the acquisition of private property located at 636 North Hill Place, Los Angeles, California, 90012, and on the required procedures to acquire the property through eminent domain and to report on the use of of eminent domain to acquire other similarly situated housing developments whose affordable housing covenants are now reaching an expiration date, which would effectively remove affordability requirements and allow the property owner to raise rent-to-market rate. This is huge. So basically at the beginning of it, he was laying out the legal basis under which they're going to move forward with this and then saying, and we're going to move forward with it. And the potential ramifications are insane. Go ahead.
0: Oh, no. Well, I was going to say this is uh, really good for uh, a lot of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that Cedillo has proved eminently movable on this one because for a long while, the Hillside Villa tenants could not get a meeting with him and actually like oh yeah showed up at his office several times and had the police called on uh, on them and uh, basically were dodged by him and his staff for months and months and months and months. And now we're beginning to see this. And I think one thing that's kind of interesting about this is for all the landlords who are like, hey, if you do rent control, if you do mandated affordability, why would I even want to be in the rental business? It's like, well, you know what? Here's a great (laughs) chance for you to get (laughs) out. Like, here's some cash in hand, and you can just fuck off. And then you don't have to be in the rental business anymore. And, like, it's a problem that, you know, has a great solution now. I think it's also going to be interesting to see what kind of budget the city is going to lay out to do this. Because I don't think they have cash on hand to purchase all of the, like, hundreds of buildings that this would potentially capture.
1: Um, No, but this also does tie in nicely with the possibility of creating, like, the Los Angeles Public Bank. So if we actually had a city-owned public bank, we could finance these things. And to be fair, in this instance, they were able to find ways to finance the debt forgiveness or loan refinancing or whatever it was going to be for Tom Botts that was going to give him more than $10 bucks. So they've been able to find the money to do something like that. And when you look at it in terms of the grand scheme of things, this is so much less expensive than you know trying to build 124 new units of affordable housing like well not even we're not at- even
0: you know building 20, 124 units like assuming that you know 30% of these people end up on the street then yeah. you know the, the the cost over just a couple of years is astronomically greater than buying out this building Absolutely. and just making sure people yeah. have a place to live
1: this is so it's it's this is a win-win solution in terms of it, it makes financial sense for anyone who is going to be you know skeptical that cities have the money to actually be doing this but it, it, it it's also just like this is the compassionate and right thing to do because these people have lived in a lot of circumstances the, the some of these tenants have been there for more than like they've been there for like 30 years like they've been there for a long time since the building basically opened there's one of the tenants who was speaking you know, at the presser who had literally lived in this building. Like it's the only place she's lived in LA for her entire life that she's been here. And she's in a teenager. Um, but yeah, so the, just to really get a sense of the scale of all this, the LA LAist wrote up a piece, on this uh, motion and the, and the possible ramifications of it, um, and they they cited the fact that quote LA's housing department has estimated that eleven thousand seven hundred and seventy one units across the city are at risk of converting from affordable to market rate rents in the coming years. Sadios said he would consider using eminent domain to preserve affordable housing in other buildings. End quote. So yeah, the the folks, I mean, uh, Damien uh, Damian Goodman from the Crenshaw Co- Crenshaw Subway Coalition. Was there to speak out uh, in support of the tenants and this victory that they're 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 getting through the council member's office, uh, and very eloquently pointed out the fact that this tool can be used in so many ways up and down the city, uh, especially in neighborhoods where the 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 Crenshaw. Subway Coalition is doing their organizing work because they're, they're really facing some intense gentrification pressure because of the expansion of metro services in the area and a lack of uh, real protections for tenants uh, in the city and in the state as a whole when it comes to this kind of predatory uh, purchasing and land speculation.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to say, if you want to hear from a first person perspective what the conditions in Hillside were like, uh, I did an interview with Adela and Mauricio, who are two of the tenants that organized with LA Tenant Union uh, and also have been longtime residents. Uh, Adela ended up there because she used to live where the Staples Center was, and she was eminent domained out right. of her home in that area and moved into the Hillside Villa so they could put up the Staples Center. So, yep. this is a nice change of pace from that, I guess. You know, like there's it, what's, I think, interesting to, to mention here here also is that when we look at other times that eminent domain has been used in the city of Los Angeles, uh, it generally tends to be used for things like sports complexes, like we've seen that happening down in... Yeah, uh, well, we've seen that in Inglewood. We've also seen that up where oh, yeah, Chavez sure. Ravine is, like where Dodger yes. Stadium is. Like that used to be housing for like a, mi- a mainly immigrant community, and uh, the city of LA was going to put up uh, public housing for white people, like middle class white people. And then uh, they eminent domained all the property. They literally went in there yep. with LAPD, kicked everyone out. I believe people died. Uh, and then they never built the public housing because they suddenly realized that you know they didn't want to do that anymore. So they. Built built dodger stadium there and that's how we see dodger games now so that's fun
1: yeah that's a fun little bleak note to end on for that yeah that story Uh. like i kind of talked myself into a corner i was like there's just this this story sucks
0: like i've always been a dodgers fan like ish i'm not like a huge sports fan in any you know case but like i've been a dodgers fan but i'm also like can we you know just have a sport that isn't owned by billionaires and built on a legacy of genocide like for fuck's sake
1: the answer is no. Um, but realistically, the, this is, like you said, a fantastic turn of events when it comes to the application of eminent domain by the city of Los Angeles, if it does you know, pr- move past this report back phase. Because this, yeah. this motion is just a, a preliminary phase at this point. It is instructing the city it's attorney to look into doing it. Yeah, and like tell us how back. we would do this. Exactly, and it's uh, it, it has been referred to the housing committee, which fortunately uh, Gil Cedio is the chair of the housing committee, so I think. I think he's going to go ahead and have uh, have a vote on his own motion to get it out of the housing committee uh, and take him to the general floor of the, uh, the council chamber for a, a full council vote. Uh, so I don't think it's going to get held up in committee. Uh, I don't really think that there's actually any way that it could get held up in committee. So this is a, a very strategic win for the Los yeah. Angeles Tenants Union and uh, Chinatown community for equitable development uh, because this is the right council member to uh, be persuaded to do this because he's the one who holds uh, all of the power when it comes to pushing housing legislation through the city government. Like he, he literally has, you know, he's proven to be a bit of a roadblock on so many other pieces of housing legislation. But uh, I guess this is one that has, you know, hit that sweet spot for him and he's moving yeah. forward and it's, it's great to see. So well, pressure works, tenant- folks. Tenant organizing especially works. We've seen these wins
0: like not just here at Hillside, but we also saw that win with Charlie Pepper when he uh, was yes. able to organize his building. And I forget what yep. the name of the Kingswood. building is, but Kingswood. There we yeah. go. And then we also had the Burlington Unitos uh, rent strike, which I believe is still the largest in the country, like the the wow. most tenants involved in it, uh, wow. like ever and in history. Yeah. yeah, the expo tenants also, but the expo tenants didn't win. The Burlington tenants, no. most of them ended up winning. But we're seeing like the tide turning. And like the point I'm getting yeah. at is tenant organizing is proving to be uniquely effective. And it's something yes. that like we need to be doing more of. I know just on Ground Games block, like right next to us is basically some senior housing. Those seniors are now organizing because yes. their housing is under threat from the rapid pace of gentrification in that neighborhood. This is going to keep popping up. All over, especially like as this begins to move east, I feel like as the as we run out of properties in like sort of like the core of LA and gentrification keeps pushing east, we're going to see much more effective tenant organizing, especially coming from immigrant communities that are pretty used to organizing themselves anyway. So I you know, I'm sticking with my prediction that housing is pretty much going to be the, the biggest issue of this this coming election year, but I believe that. Coming up <laughs> yeah, coming up, coming up, on another very important issue, uh, yes. Los Angeles County is uh, voting for our district attorney and is beginning to pick up national attention. It is a really heated and interestingly competitive race with uh, incumbent DA Jackie Lacey running against uh, Gascon, who's the former uh, DA from San Francisco, and then also mm-hmm. Rachel Rossi, who's a former LA County and federal public defender. Uh, they had a debate. Uh, it got freaking raucous from what i saw Uh, black lives matter showed up there and disrupted um the mother of john horton showed up and asked about why her son was uh murdered in jail uh you know and why that was hidden from the public and why there's never been an investigation of it uh and we can actually
1: play some audio from that uh pop it in right now
0: You,
1: Jackie oh, Macy, what about my you? son John Orton? The 3,000-born gang can not beat my son to death in his cell, and you've done nothing, Jackie Macy. You've done nothing. And I love Jackie Macy.
0: But yeah, so Black Lives Matter has been, you know, talking about the DA's race for years and the fact that we need to get rid of Jackie Lacey, that she's not the reformer yep. she claims to be, that she's not on the side of the people. We might actually do that this year. It seems like Lacey yeah. is pretty scared by uh, both of these competitors. And she she had, like, some pretty hot takes at the debate.
1: Y- y- yes. Uh, so the one in particular that we're thinking about is uh, very succinctly summed up in a tweet from... Rachel Rossi's campaign uh, right after the debate, saying, uh, I was told last night, let me say it it again, quote, I was told last night that being a former public defender doesn't make me a, quote unquote, real lawyer. I represented people regardless of class, race, and gender. I fought injustice. I kept hope alive. I'm not just a lawyer, a real lawyer. I am the realist, and I'll be an outstanding DA too, end quote. And this um, was
0: in a, what she's what she's responding to is during the debate. Uh, Jackie Lacey was asked what it takes to be an effective DA, and yes. she said that you need a real lawyer in the position, and the implication there being that being a public defender is not a real lawyer. And what's oh, yeah. weird about this too is like <laughs> I think you know, like just to, to give you all a mind into like what I'm thinking of uh, in terms of this race, like I. I pretty sure i'm voting for rachel rossi at the same yes. time i wouldn't be upset if Gascone won it and and the only reason i'm saying that is Gascone has run a da's office before and jackie Lacey was never like a try person type of lawyer like she was a lawyer but she mainly did administration and management and that's largely what the da position is like she's not right. trying cases she's managing this office of hundreds of attorney and like another you know several hundred staff Gascone's got experience doing that, and he's more of a reformer than she is. So like oh, I'd be excited to see him in there. But it's also weird that like Jackie Lacey is saying you're not a real lawyer as a public defender when pretty much all you do is work with clients in the criminal yeah. legal system.
1: She's and, significantly more of a real lawyer than she is. You know, Jackie the implication
0: Yeah, the implication being that Jackie Lacey, <laughs> who spent her career in administration, is a more yes, real lawyer. <laughs> and I just it, it's kind of a level of hubris there and one that I think shows her disconnect from what's really going on. She brought her own cheerleading section. We should mention that. Well, like of some of the people who work for, for uh, Jackie Lacey showed up to cheer her on, uh, which, you know, it's cool when the people whose jobs you control show up to support you because I'm sure it's 100% authentic Definitely and organic. Definitely yep. Yeah, well, I don't even think it has to be coerced. I just like, there's a part of even the people who want to be there who are only doing it because she's the boss.
1: Yeah, you right, know
0: nobody enough. in the Black Lives Matter cohort is showing up because like anyone's on anyone's payroll where they stand to benefit yes. from it personally. One hundred percent. Like this yeah. is all movement building activity and solidarity activity, and it's kind of cool that we have two two campaigns that we could at least like mostly get behind, um, yeah. which is way more than we had even a couple of months ago. All right, let's uh, let's move on to the last of our news items, which coincidentally is housing. Uh, we told you it was going to be a lot of housing, <laughs> and uh, surprise. Yep. More housing. But this is, again, a a really good one. (laughs) So uh, Mike Bonin has... been pushing pretty far left on housing policy, at least as far as like LA City Council yeah. goes. Uh, and so he has not only floated the idea of a vacancy tax, which we might be able to vote on in November, it's still up in the air, uh, but he also has some plans to stop the Ellis Act from destroying the West Side.
1: Not a, a panacea for all of LA. To, to quote from the LA Times, quote, under the municipal code, the city can refuse to take a key step toward converting a residential building into condos if two conditions are met. One being that the rental... So I'm, I'm adding a little bit of connotations here because it doesn't work well for translating to audio. Number One being that the rental market in the area has seen a quote-unquote significant cumulative effect from such building conversions, and two, that the vacancy rate in the area is 5% or less, end quote, and paraphrasing. Um, so what it really comes down to here is that there's no one who's actually measuring this shit. Uh, LADWP yes. and all of the other departments really just don't care because they just don't feel like it's part of their job. And unless the city council really like lays the hammer down, they're not going to bother reporting back with this information. Uh, and so back in 2018, Bonin introduced this measure with uh, Kerkorian as his second on it uh, and got it through. And it took you know a long while, but it finally now has passed uh, unanimously through council. This happened on Tuesday. And it is instructing Great. the planning department. Yeah, exactly. It's instructing the planning department and others to gather the information that is needed for that 5% vacancy tabulation uh, for a long list of Westside neighborhoods, which is, of course, where Bonin is the representative. Um, Specifically, this includes specific Palisades, Westchester, Delray, Brentwood, Venice, Mar Vista, and your former home of Palms. So uh, this is a huge step. And uh, our our buddy, Bill Przlucki, who is the executive director of the community organizing group People Organized for West Side Renewal, uh, who we've never spoken about before, except at the top of this podcast, uh, told the L.A. Times that, quote, the Ellis Act doesn't give developers the right to do anything they want. There are supposed to be limits on their power and there are supposed to be protections for tenants and um, quote. And so, yeah, that that is explicitly what is going on here, and uh, it, it's great to see the LA Times yeah. go into Bill to get a quote about this, and he's yeah, very he good was, at summarizing was, exactly what's going on. Yeah.
0: yeah, he was also quoted in Curb that same day. Bill had a yeah. little like mini media tour, which is uh, pretty <laughs> exciting for him. Uh, and this is like you know, it, it's a, a good move. It's obviously not anything that's going to make changes anytime soon, and that's kind of the problem with you know, just city council and the size of our city in general is it takes council offices and it takes these massive bureaucracies, like, a really long time to move and coordinate to do something. And this is one reason, like, if we're going to concentrate power over these districts into city council hands, we need smaller city council I'll, districts. yeah, 100%. You know, like, if Mike Bonin was, like, Responsive to thirty to fifty thousand people instead of like a quarter, million, a quarter million, like <laughs> it would be much easier to get like that neighborhood surveyed and get stuff happening and like actually you know get business done. But again, like you know, it's better than nothing, and hopefully we'll stop Ellis Act And also, I think. For anyone thinking about Ellis acting their building, the you know the backlash to these sorts of plans is like, they're going to double time it on that now because they understand that that, that window is going to be closing. And if they want yeah. to ensure some ROI, they're just going to cash out now rather than risk getting stuck with a the building. They don't want to be upkeeping because being a landlord is costly, but just like flipping buildings and Ellis acting them, that's pretty profitable.
1: Yeah, especially because there really don't tend to be any ramifications or punishments that come with that because it's... This is just an area where we don't really have any meaningful enforcement. Um, one other well, thing I think, that I, I wanted think to throw also out it there. took
0: like well, it took the the building in Hollywood um, yeah. that Sylvie Shane organized. It took yeah. them like two years to organize a right to return, Oof. and by then like people had moved on. Like even yeah. when you do get caught Wh- for the Ellis Act, do? it takes a really long fucking time to undo that. And by the time there's like some sort of a um, you know, uh, conclusion reached, you're not in a position to just like start your life back up at that old place you used to live. Um, and it, it rarely comes with a huge financial consequence for the landlord. And it's, it's, yeah, you know, I say repeal Ellis Act altogether, um, oh, which yeah, is one yeah. thing that confuses <laughs> me and like frustrates <laughs> me about like the sp 50 crowd is yeah. when they're like, yeah, Prop 13 and uh, the Ellis Act. You know these things need, and Costa cost Hawkins like, yeah, those things are probably also jamming up the ho- housing market too, and we should get rid of them first before we do the SB50s. Like, if we don't 100%. remove the things that structurally break our housing market, then SB50 and can is not going to do a hell of a lot to fix it. Like, it's just going to make you can those say they
1: ain't gonna worse. do shit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'll no, it'll do shit. It'll like fuck everything it'll up some more. Worse, you know, yeah. it'll no, do that's a very something. Fair point. You know, Like a any toddler with a sledgehammer, it, yeah. <laughs> it will accomplish some sort of thing. For better or for worse, we do not know.
1: Meaningful change with a sledgehammer. Um, yeah, but so I was actually going to say like the one, one kind of fun thing uh, just in terms of nostalgia for me is actually the Ellis Act is the first thing I ever gave public comment at LA City Hall about was uh, Sylvie Shane had invited folks to come and participate in in a, I think it was like the planning and land use committee um, was having a hearing relative to the conversion of, I think it was like a two or an eight maybe unit building that was somewhere in Hollywood. It was not her building. It was another one that she had taken on as a uh, you know, cause uh, of hers. And uh, it was her personal mission to make sure that these t- tenants were not going to be kicked out on the street when she was doing all of her organizing with Vlatu. And the, result was that we, we made a pretty compelling argument to say, hey, look, we don't have the numbers to back this up, but the empirical evidence, like the anecdotal evidence of just looking around and seeing what is going on here and seeing yeah. the rise in homelessness shows you that there is absolutely a significant cum- cumulative impact going on. Uh, For these Ellis Act conversions. And when you're removing these few remaining like actually affordable units, it really it's the people who came to give testimony of what it was going to mean to them made a very compelling argument that says, look, we're going to become potentially homeless if you do go through with this conversion. And I argued that, look, we've got enough, you know, we're building enough condos. And market rate construction. If you just look out the windows from City Hall and look down to the south a little bit, you can see all this new construction going up in South Park and the rest of downtown. Uh, And they ended up winning that. Uh, And I got a little, you know, I got a package in the mail uh from city hall because i had included my address when i was filling out the speaker form this is before the uh the kiosks took over and you still had to fill out the actual speaker cards for some for some of the committees at least um but good times. so just a little bit of nostalgia with fighting the alice act it's uh it's a thing it's good do it (laughs) cue up memories
0: uh and have that send us into uh our pickups uh as far as what's going on this week what do we got on the
1: agenda chris well, so we've got the Black Lives Matter weekly vigil happening again on Wednesday downtown at 211 West Temple, as usual. The vigil will be starting at 4 and runs until 6. Uh, come on out, chant bye bye, Jackie 2020. Uh, or rather, bye, Jackie 2020. Uh, Jackie Lacey must go. Bye bye, Jackie. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of fun chants. It's a really good, uh, powerful holding of space that happens on the steps of the hall of justice. And, uh, if you have not been, uh, go, it's, it's very good. It's very powerful. Um, and it's something that everyone should see and be a part of if they can. Uh, it's, it's also, you know, as we, as we said, it's leading to this very contentious, uh, now DA race. I, I think that if, if black lives matter and these other groups hadn't been making as much of a fuss in front of, like you know, kicking up shit in front of the Hall of Justice and doing this every week, I don't know if Gascon would have come down here to try to actually challenge Jackie Lacy um, leading up to she it. Like would have
0: she definitely would not have been as vulnerable, and it like absolutely. vulnerability is shown in some uh, not completely. Surprising, but still a little bit surprising ways with like various Democratic caucuses uh, opting to not endorse her, uh, catching a lot of flack now in the national press as well as the local press. Uh, Yeah, it seems like her foundation is pretty shaken. And again, like, I think part of it also has to do with the fact that this is not an off year election. You know, this isn't an odd year like nobody else's voting election, which is like how she won the last two times. And like, that doesn't really. That's not a true sampling of the city, so I think this time around no. we're going to see like a much more competitive race with a lot more people like fired up and interested to um you know uh, to vote, um especially with the presidential uh, primary going on and I actually I oh, think sorry. the the kind of like God, I'm kind of rambling here for a minute, but the the free (laughs) radical, I think, in this is if somebody like Bernie Sanders were to endorse like Rachel Rossi, that could severely change the balance of the race. You know, I think Jackie Lacey's already fighting for the number two spot. I don't think she's guaranteed to sail through to um, the primary. So, you know, what happens (laughs) if one of her two challengers gets a huge gust of wind? We'll see. Uh, But yeah, y'all should definitely make it out on uh, Wednesdays. Um, It's. You know, unfortunately, we keep having to add names to the banner. um, We'll be out there every day until we no longer have to put names on that banner.
1: Hell yeah. Uh, Also, this week, there are a number of Los Angeles Tenants Union meetings that are going to be taking place. Uh, They've got a general meeting coming up on February 3rd. That's Monday night. That meeting is going to be happening at uh, at UTLA on Wilshire and Berendo. Uh, Starts at 7, runs to 9. They've got their sustainability meeting happening the next day on the 4th. Uh, all these, all of these meetings and events are up, of course, at latenantsunion.org/en/calendar. Uh, slash slash I'm sure there's also slash es/calendar, slash but this is the one I got open right now. Um, and then on Wednesday, they're going to be having their West Side local, their Hollywood local, as well as the Mid City local, and the media team are all meeting up on Wednesday evening. And then on Thursday, they have the Vibe local, which is where our friends uh, like Trinidad Ruiz and all of the other people who make the vibe local so much fun. Uh, they do their meeting, which happens to coincide exactly with when ground game has our meetings. Uh, coincidentally, that's also when, when, uh, one of the committees that I like to be, I uh, really want to be a part of with K town for all has their meetings. So everybody wants to meet on Thursdays. Um, but yeah, come on out and join us. Of course, our ground game meetings happen every Thursday from 7:30 until 9. PM 5617 Hollywood Boulevard, just a couple of blocks from the Hollywood Western Redline Metro Stop. So, as always, if y'all have any events that you want us to take part in, publicize, or just be made aware of, send us a message. You can reach us through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or by email at podcast at groundgamela.org. This podcast and every Ground Game podcast is a production of Knock.LA. Support our work on Patreon over at patreon.com slash knock underscore LA. Check out the description for sources, links to actions, and social media links.
0: Y'all have yourselves a great week we